Today's episode of the Wicked Library is presented by Shadows at the Door. You can find and support the Shadows at the Door Kickstarter at shadowsatthedoor.com. Hello, kitties. This is your librarian from the Wicked Library. There's nothing like the feeling that you're not quite alone. The cold hand of fear that clutches your heart when you hear the loud creak of a slowly opening door in an all but empty house. Or a child's laugh in a childless home. Or the cold breath on the back of your neck on a perfectly still summer's evening. Shadows at the Door is an illustrated anthology of ghastly tales from around the world that aims to capture that feeling of dread for your enjoyment. (laughs) Join us in the shadows and help bring this project to life on Kickstarter. Cold blood is guaranteed. (laughs) Find and support the Shadows at the Door Kickstarter at shadowsatthedoor.com Warning. The Wicked Library contains adult themes, adult situations, adult language, and graphic depictions of terror, bloodshed, the occasional possession, and your future trips to your psychiatrist, so he or she can assure you it's only a story. This podcast is intended for mature audiences only. You've been warned, kiddies. <laughs> Hello, kiddies. Have a seat and relax. I am your librarian. There's nothing to be afraid of, yet. Hold on to yourselves, boils and ghouls. This is going to be a dark ride. We'll leave the lights on for now. No talking. It's story time at the Wicked Library. <laughs> And let me tell you, that was the last slip I ever took from a whore, Early shouted. Didn't have lips, once I was done with her, in fact. He drained his beer mug of backwash, pudgy fingers smearing the glass with pork grease. Tommy took it and dropped it right into the well of suds. He didn't like touching Early's glasses if he could help it, but that was his job. Early pushed another coin across the counter. We're closing up, Reg, Tommy said. Why don't you go on home? 
Early reared back, red-faced. What? My money's no good? Your money's good. It's just, I've been standing here all night listening to your stories, and now my feet are aching, and I want to get on home to Marianne. Ah, sweet Marianne, Early sighed. Tommy did not like the way he did that, the way this pig of a man spoke of his wife. Now there's a fine piece. You're a lucky one, Tommy boy, and you with barely a pot to piss in. Tommy smiled patiently. Early was trying to get his goat, and he just wanted the man out of his pub. Let him go tell his vulgar stories elsewhere, to the whores out on the common. And who knows what he'd do to them after that, poor things. We're happy, Tommy said. Which is more than can be said for some. Who, me? Early made a big show of taking offense. I'm rich, in case you've forgotten. A little gold can buy a lot of happiness, my friend. It can buy a lot of other things as well. Early looked around the dingy pub. There was one drunk, a derelict named Fitzy, sleeping in one of the corner tables. Maybe I'll buy this pub. Not for sale, Tommy said. Some things you can't buy. Now, if you don't mind. Ah, don't get all bent out of shape. Early pushed off his stool and stepped away from the bar. I'm just razzing you, you miserable mick. He slapped another coin on the bar, just so Tommy didn't forget who held the real power. I'll see you tomorrow. I hope not, Tommy thought. I hope the back bay butcher meets you out on the common and spares me the sight of your ugly face ever again. But in his heart, Tommy O'Doyle knew that the butcher wasn't coming for Reginald Early. And that was because the back bay butcher was Reginald Early. And if he ever dared to voice his suspicion... Early would use every penny of his vast family fortune to ruin him. So he watched Early go, roused Fitzy from his drunken slumber, and closed up the pub for the night. The brisk Boston air bolstered Early as he stepped lightly down the Charles Street cobblestones. It was fall, his favorite time of the year, when the night was cool, but the whores would still be out in good numbers. As he neared Beacon Street, he picked up his stride, the white of his spats, and the clack of his heels, giving him a giddy little thrill. Tonight, he was on the hunt, and his hours spent in the Beacon Hill pub had left him good and lubricated for the task. Now, all he required was a woman. As he crossed into the commons, the breeze picked up, and on it, he caught a whiff of molasses. Throughout the heat of August, the city had stunk of the stuff, but by now the heavy cold air should have stifled the smell. Back in January of that year, in a distillery in the North End, a tanker full of more than two million gallons of molasses burst and flooded the entire area, killing 21 people and injuring 150 more. Horses were stuck in the mass of muck, buildings swept clear of their foundations, vehicles stranded. Even the Boston Elevated Railway was gummed into submission, and the company that owned the distillery, United States Industrial Alcohol, was run by the Early family. Reginald himself had been a vice president for more than five years and was biding his time until his father, Reginald I, passed away and left him the keys to the kingdom. But father had an unpleasant habit of staying alive, and now the company was facing over $600,000 in damages 
making Reginald Jr.'s fortunes far less assured than they had been previously. On clear, windless days, Early could forget this troubling possibility. But on nights like tonight, when the wind was strong, the smell came wafting into the back bay to remind him. Once he was on the common's winding paths, searching for his evening rose, Early was able to ignore the sick sugar smell nagging at his nostrils. There was a cluster of trees near the northeast border where a girl could be found on most any night. And thankfully, tonight proved no different. As he approached the trees, a pretty moppet with stringy brown curls stepped out from behind an oak, clutching at her skirts demurely. Out for a late walk, she asked. As far as propositions went, it was an awkward one, but Early wasn't one to split hairs. He tipped his hat to her. I am, he answered, affecting a more gentlemanly tone, and in need of some company. The girl smiled, took his greasy hand, and led him into the thatch of trees. Once they were cloaked by the shadowy branches, he pushed her up against a maple and slipped his hand up into the folds of her petticoat. She gasped as his fingers sought their prize. But before they could reach it, she gently pushed him away. Do you have money? She asked. All that you'll need. Five for a fuck, was her offer. If you want more, we can negotiate. Oh, he would have more, but he wouldn't be paying for it. And it would be more than she was willing to give. But for now, he took out his billfold, took out a crisp fiver, and handed it to her hot, eager hands. She tucked it into the cleavage of her slightly exposed breasts, leaned back on the tree, and breathed deep of the crisp night air. Smell that. It's in the air tonight. The smell of molasses. Early was becoming annoyed by her stalling, and more annoyed still at the mention of the blasted molasses. It's a disgusting smell. Now, open your legs. Speaking of smells. She did as he asked and he got down to the business of wriggling a finger inside her. But to his chagrin, this didn't keep her from talking. I like the smell, she continued, unasked. It reminds me of my dear sweet sister Sarah. She died back in January, in the flood. Was she a whore as well? Early was hoping to shut her mouth with cruel words, but the bitch just kept talking. She was my light in the darkness, my shining star... Her face turned from his. Her eyes saddened. I miss her so much that even the smell of what killed her brings me comfort. Put that mouth to better use, Early demanded, shoving her down on her knees. She did as she was asked of her, pleasuring him with some skill. As she worked diligently at the root of his lust, he reached into the pocket of his coat for the implement that awaited there. His fingers ran down the smooth ivory of the handle touching the cold steel of the tucked-in blade, giving him a shuddering thrill. As he neared climax, he drew the straight razor out, snapping the blade out with a deft flick of the wrist, ready to slash the girl's throat. The sound of a whistle shrieked out across the commons, and the girl looked up to see the flashing blade nearing her neck. She withdrew from her loathsome task, backed up against the trunk of the tree, leaving early dangling, exposed to the elements. You there, shouted a voice. Stop that at once. Early reached down to tuck his member back into his trousers, having to drop the straight razor to avoid cutting himself. Seeing now what Early had intended to do, 
The girl got up and backed away from the tree, eyes wide with horrible realization. Early seemed far more annoyed by the interruption than afraid of being caught. Coming down the common path was a constable, a mustachioed lad not much older than 18, barely filling out the shoulders of his uniform. He approached the tree-lined area, eyes dead on Early, and fingered the baton slung at his waist. Is there a problem, officer? Early asked with a soused, disingenuous smile. What's going on here? The constable inquired. He stepped closer to the tree, taking in Early and the frightened look on the girl's face. Early tried to cover the razor with his shoe, but the officer spotted it. Hold on now. He bent over and picked up the blade. What's this? A razor, of course, Early answered with some indignity. It must have slipped out of my pocket. He was going to cut me with it, the girl leveled an accusing finger at Early. He's the back bay butcher. Absurd, Early huffed, keeping his attention trained on the constable. Are you seriously going to take the word of this slut? The constable considered. I think you'd better come along with me, sir. Early steeled his face, furrowed his brow, the way he did when he wanted subordinates to know that he was not to be questioned. And in Reginald Early's mind, everyone, save father, was a subordinate. I will not. Do you know who I am? Can't say that I do. I am Reginald Early, Jr., of the Charleston Earlys. My father owns the United States Industrial Alcohol Company, as well as several other citywide concerns. We exert a considerable influence over the city council. Do you know what that means, Constable? No, the young man answered, though I suspect that you'll tell me. It means, Early continued, getting close enough to intimidate the man, that, with a word, I can have your badge. Is that something you'd be willing to risk on the supposition of a whore? The constable did not answer. These were treacherous waters, and even at a young age, he knew the dangers of wading into them unprepared. Early took his silence, his acquiescence, and snatched the razor out of his hands. Now, if you don't mind, I'll be on my way. A pleasant evening to you, officer. Early turned to the girl, tipping the brim of his hat with a lascivious smile. And to you, madam. Early strolled off down the path, and the constable did not follow. He and the girl just stood there by the trees, watching a wolf slink off into the night. Early had taken up residence in the Charles Gate a luxurious hotel situated outside of Kenmore Square, some ten blocks west. It was a walk that Early enjoyed, and the route he most favored was the Commonwealth Avenue Mall, a straight parkway running eight city blocks and ending at Massachusetts Avenue. Charming brownstones lined both sides of the picturesque park, and the grassy mall running through the center was punctuated by statues and memorials reminding the stroller of Boston's rich, storied history. On sunny days, it was a cheerful jaunt for pedestrians and lollygaggers, but at night, it was something even better. At night, the trees gave cover to the wanton lurker, a title early was proud to wear, and the statues provided all the shelter a man with his appetites would need. And tonight, his appetites had not been met. 
Not yet, anyway. Twenty paces down the path, a fog rolled in, and after a hundred, it was thicker than a velvet curtain. It wasn't uncommon for fog to roll in off the Charles, but this had none of the clamminess of river condensation. It was acrid and oily, as if the smoke from a fire, and Early had to stop and scan the brownstones to see if any of them were ablaze. None of them were. No matter, he thought. All the better to cover me should I happen upon some slut out on a midnight stroll. Still, he had to keep his eyes on the wide paved path for fear that he would lose his direction and wander out into the street. Not that there were many carriages or motor cars to run him down this late at night. From the swirling miasma emerged a shape, and Early naturally assumed that it was a person walking at him from the opposite direction. But as he drew closer, he realized that it was the first of several statues along the walk, a towering effigy forged of brass. This one bore the likeness of Alexander Hamilton, celebrated founding father and the nation's first secretary of the treasury. Normally, Early could appreciate this master of coin, but tonight he felt that Hamilton was judging him from high upon his pedestal, looking down with his long, snooty nose. Piss off, he grumbled to the memorial. The statue said nothing, and Early went on his way. A gust blew across the mall, ruffling the collar of Early's coat. But somehow, the fog stayed settled and heavy. On the breeze, he detected that same sickly smell that had plagued him all night. Molasses caught on the wind, traveling a straight, cursed current directly from the north end to his olfactory. It was almost as if the hateful odor was following him. Hello there, a voice cooed. Lovely night, isn't it? Early whipped around, startled by the voice. A giggle followed, distinctly female, but he could see nothing in the cloudy swirl. He turned back to the statue and caught a flash of fabric disappear behind the pedestal. Someone was hiding from him, taunting him into some sort of game. You want to play games, Early mused. I'll give you a thrill you won't soon forget. He came around the statue to find nothing, just more fog and Hamilton's bronzed backside. The giggling came again, mocking him from somewhere unseen, and Early began to wonder if it wasn't the same whore from the commons back to play tricks on him. It did sound vaguely like her voice, but the idea that some dizzy-headed streetwalker would have the stones to follow him onto the mall, especially after how close he came to the kill. That would seem the actions of a madwoman. But Boston was a big city, after all, and you never know what sort of crazy you might run into on a shadowy street. Early himself was proof of that. There was a moment when he considered abandoning this full chase and going on his way, but being toyed with both angered and excited him. He made a clockwise circle around the statue, then did it again, and upon coming to face the commons on the third pass, the voice started singing, Ring around the rosy, in a mocking lilt. In an attempt to outthink his opponent, Early stopped suddenly and started back around counterclockwise. Someone was there, but not who he expected. It did resemble a woman, 
But instead of feminine beauty, there was melting, viscous horror. Her form was a mass of oily movement, her clothes drenched in something running and black, a foul, dripping substance. Her hair, what was left of it, hung from her scalded scalp in wet, plastering strands, parting like rivers around pupilless eyes. Once pillow-soft lips had been burned away to reveal a blackened, leering death smile, a mockery of everything that was enticing and erotic. If the thing hadn't laughed as he stumbled back, Early would have thought that he had run into a corpse that had dredged itself out of the river. Lord knows he had slipped his fair share of bodies into the shallows of the Charles. "'You caught me,' the horror said. Taking a step towards him, she put her hands over the lapels of his jacket, disarmingly forward for a cadaver. "'And now I caught you.' He pulled away, taking the flesh of her hands with him, clinging like taffy pulled from a stick. Only it wasn't flesh that clung to him. It was molasses. Noxious, reeking molasses that coated every inch of her, bubbled from every pore in oily, microscopic wells. "'Get away from me, rank cunt!' he shouted. But the woman stayed planted, staring with blank eyes smiling a charnel house smile, molasses dripping off her like a constantly shedding skin. He reached for his razor, finding it right where he left it. Flicking it open, he held it towards her, slashing the foul air between them. I'll cut you, bitch! Don't think that I won't! The woman laughed at the gesture. It was a joyless, gurgling sound. She stepped towards him, undeterred and he slashed the blade across the width of her throat. Something gushed from the wound, but it wasn't blood. It was molasses, a thick, sticky fountain that would never run dry. Early stumbled back, gasping in wondrous terror. Not real, he stammered. This is impossible. The impossibility before him opened her arms, wanting to fold him forever into the curtains of clinging ooze. Come to me, my love, she beckoned wetly. Come sample Sarah's sweet pleasures. Sarah, had she said, the sister of that whore who died as a result of his company's negligence in the North End? No, that couldn't be it. There was no such thing as ghosts. Reginald Early was nothing if not a rational man, and he did not believe in spooks and banshees. He believed in what he could hold and control. He believed in money and the cold steel razor that he held in his hand. He did not believe that he was being haunted by a vengeful spirit that had crawled out of sugary muck. Yet here it stood, mocking him with a smile that dripped silky black. Whatever this was, whether phantom or hallucination, he had no desire to humor it further. He turned away from the seeping monstrosity and ran down the mall, breathlessly stumbling across Berkeley Street, hoping the mist would swallow the nightmare behind him. The block between Berkeley and Clarendon was much the same as the one he had fled, and like that block, this one was shrouded in fog. The strain of running caused his lungs to ache, and stumbling through the gloom, he came to rest at another statue. This one 
of Revolutionary War hero John Glover. Leaning against the statue's pedestal, struggling for breath, he scanned the moving shadows for signs of his viscous specter. There were only shadows. He stood there a while, sanity returning. Perhaps this was only the lapsing of a taxed mind, the inconsequential spasm of a fevered imagination. Maybe he was more intoxicated than he realized, or coming down with some brain-boiling illness. Or maybe he was just going mad. What he needed was to get home and rest, to put this night terror behind him and get about the business of workaday life. Perhaps it was time, as much as it pained him, to put the nocturnal wanderings of Reggie the Ripper to bed once and for all. Shaking it off, he turned and walked around the statue to the path that led to Clarendon Street. Standing there, waiting for him, was sweet, sticky, Sarah. Impossible, he muttered, unwilling to believe the truth his eyes were telling him. There was no way, no conceivable way, that she could have passed him on the path, circumvented the statue, and beaten him here. It was just not physically possible. He turned to run, all the way back to the Beacon Hill pub if he had to, but his feet would not move. Looking down, he saw that the path itself had become a gooey morass, sucking his legs into it up to his calves. The black, tar-like molasses was holding him fast in its grip, movement only making him sink into it further. As he stood there, staring dumbfounded into the blackness, his knees were swallowed beneath the oily surface. Sarah's mockery of a laugh chided him from behind, summoning terrible shapes to emerge from the opaque liquid. They were hands, grasping slime-caked hands rising from the depths like souls from hell. Instinctively, he knew they belonged to his victims and that they sought to drag him down with them into the suffocating black. No, Early howled. I will not go. Do you hear me, witch? I will not go. In a gasp of self-preservation, Early lunged for the shores of the pool, landing with both hands scrabbling at solid ground. Incredibly, he found purchase on the nub of a jutting root, and it allowed him something on which to pull. Every muscle screamed as he fought his way out of the pool, legs kicking free of the pale, reaching hands. After moments of incredible strain, he was on solid ground once again, laid out on his back, staring up at the stars with crazed bewilderment. He sat up, expecting to see Sarah there, enraged by his escape. But the ghost was gone. Looking over his shoulder, he saw only the flat concrete of the path, the molasses pool, and the hands that had ensnared him were gone. There wasn't so much as a puddle left on the ground. None of it had happened. Nothing. No pole, no arms, no Sarah had ever been there. Whether real or imagined, Early didn't intend to lie here waiting for the specter to return. He stumbled to his feet and ran, reaching Clarendon Street and then turning north, leaving the mall in his wake. Boylston Street lay that way, as well as the old South Church, a house of worship where he had attended many a miserable mass as a boy. 
Surely that drafty stone shrine with its back-cramping pews could offer him some measure of sanctuary. He stumbled into the church, ragged and out of breath. At this late hour, the pews were empty and the nave quiet. But that didn't stop early bumbling toward the pulpit and shouting at the top of his lungs, Help! Someone! I need help here! Priest! Summoned from his chambers, a hastily dressed priest emerged behind the pulpit, looking like he'd been dragged straight from his coffin. The man was thin and ashen, with a light dusting of gray on his otherwise bald head. And when his bleary eyes focused on Early, they narrowed down to bitter slits. A little late for a confession, isn't it? He groused. Early recognized the priest. Father O'Brien, thank God! My name is Reginald. Yes, I know who you are, the priest interrupted. It was clear from his chilly tone that the sight of Reginald Early did not conjure pleasant feelings. Certainly not at this hour, and probably never. What can I help you with, Mr. Early? I'm being followed, Early told him, voice quavering. I'm being followed by some horrible specter, and I fear it wants to lay claim to my soul. Doubting that Early had much soul to offer, Father O'Brien approached with a skeptical look. Mr. Early, have you been drinking? I had one or two, I'll admit, but I'm telling you, Father, this was no pink elephant. Well, just look at my clothes. Early looked down at his clothes, fine tailored garments that had been soaked in that dreadful suffocating pool. But his clothes were dry, bone dry, as clean as when he stepped out of the pub. This, Early stammered, this is impossible. The priest struggled to hide his exasperation. Mr. Early, I'm sure that whatever you believed happened to you was real at the time, but the slate and even the Lord's servants require their arrest. Perhaps we could revisit this at some later date, preferably at a reasonable hour. No, Early insisted. Out of sorts as he may be, no one, not even a priest, was going to dismiss him. I demand that you hear my confession right now. Father O'Brien sighed. Fine. In the booth, if you please. The two men entered the confessional booth and took their respective seats. Father O'Brien slid open the confessional screen and listened patiently to the sinner's request for a blessing. It had been a long time since Early's last confession, since he was a very young boy, in fact. I've done terrible things, Father. Terrible, terrible things. Go on, the priest said unenthusiastically. Unburden thyself. I've been a bad man all my life. I know that, Early began. And started as a youngster, killing frogs and such. Moved on to cats when I got older, even a stray dog or two. When I came of age to drink, I got into a fight outside a pub and killed a man with a length of pipe. Got away with it, scot-free. After that, I got a taste for it. And in the last few years, I've been killing women. Whores, mostly. Though one or two of them might not have been whores. Now that I think on it, it doesn't matter. Being from a rich family has always bought me out of any punishment. I see, O'Brien said with a dry, sickened throat. How many women? Couldn't say, Early answered. I lost count around 15, though if I thought on it hard enough, I'm sure I could recall. There was one down at the docks, the three in the public gardens. 
snuck into an alley off a Yaki Way for one, and I'm fairly certain I killed four in the fens. He chuckled briefly. (laughs) The fens is a good place. Cops never go there. And this thing, this apparition, is it one of the women you murdered? That's the crazy part, Father. This spook. It isn't one of my girls. I'd recognize her if it was. I don't ever forget the faces. But before I ran afoul of her, this dribbling banshee, I nearly took the life of another girl in the commons. Copper stopped me before I could finish, but this girl, she had a sister, what died in the molasses flood back in January, the one in the north end. I'm familiar with the events, yes, O'Brien said impatiently. Go on. Anyway, this whore told me about her sister. And you see, it was my company's tanker that ruptured and killed all those people. Looking at a mighty big lawsuit to settle it, too. One that could ruin me. But I figure maybe this girl, Sarah, Sarah, her sister said her name was, maybe the Sarah has taken vengeance for all of them, you know? Maybe the dead went and chose her as their representative, their emissary from the grave, sent to carry out final judgment on behalf of them all. Father O'Brien rubbed his head with his hands. He was a man of God, but he was no superstitious fool either. It made him sick to his stomach to hear Early's confession, and it made him even sicker to know it was his duty to grant the monster absolution. But most of all, he just wanted Reginald Early and his crazy paranoid ramblings out of his church. So he told the murderer to repent to God, to ask forgiveness for all his sins, and even advised Early to turn himself into the police. He had no confidence whatsoever that Early would do so, but he felt it was his duty to at least present the idea. The rest was in the hands of the Lord. After, the priest offered to help Early summon a cab, whatever it took to hasten the man's exit. Early thanked him, and Father O'Brien went inside, and by some small miracle, a horse and buggy came down Boylston not more than five minutes later. A real stroke of luck, the priest thought. Praise be to the Almighty. The cab driver grumbled acknowledgement when Early gave him the Charlesgate address, and off they went. Clop, 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 down Boylston. Early scanned the street, glancing over the faces of vagrants and mourning laborers, looking for signs of his troublesome ghost, and finding none. In the early light and absence of shadows, he had begun to feel the fool, regretted confessing to that silly old priest. He wasn't afraid that Father O'Brien would turn him into the police. Early secrets were protected by the rights of confession, and even if the priest should go against his vows, such hearsay would never stand up in court. No, it was simply that the incident had scared him out of his wits, and Reginald Early liked his wits where they were, thank you. He much preferred to be the one doing the scaring. The next afternoon... He awoke on his top-floor Charlesgate suite, hungover, but otherwise his former unflappable self. The events of the previous night were a haze, the lingering stench of a bad dream. He ordered breakfast from room service, eggs over easy, toast, bacon, and coffee. He opened the curtains to greet the day. He didn't have much of a direct view, but if he stepped outside the window, onto the flat section of the roof, he could catch sight of the Charles River and the people strolling upon the esplanade, enjoying the unseasonable warmth. It wasn't something the hotel would encourage, but what did Early care for their rules? He was a man of wealth and considerable power, 
and such a man did as he pleased. Once out on the roof, the clatter of machinery drew his gaze downward to the street below. He was met with a gust of oil and carbon fumes, and down there on Beacon Street, he saw a truck layering thick tar over the potholes. He didn't know it, but the truck belonged to Boston Tar and Roofing, ironically, a subsidiary of his family's business. All Early knew was that the vehicle was belching up a foul stench, forcing him to cover his nose and back away from the edge. But covering his nose didn't stop the flood of odor from seeping into his brain. There, underneath the acrid bite of petroleum, another smell hit there, hiding like an unwelcome guest. A scent sickly, sugar-sweet, and all too familiar. Molasses. A wretch rose in his throat. His stomach hitched in an involuntary spasm. He wheeled around back for the window, but a wet, terrible voice froze him mid-stride. Reggie, the voice gurgled. There, standing between him and the still-open window, was sweet, sticky Sarah in all of her dripping, glistening glory. Early didn't realize that he had stumbled back until he was rocketing past the fourth-story window and saw the horrified face of a woman watching him fall. In those moments, those tiny eternities, he anticipated the pain that was coming, the pulverization of his body as it struck the cement. He needn't have worried. Waiting for him below, bubbling black, was a fresh steaming pool of his company's own tar. More than enough to scald the skin from his broken body before the nearest pedestrian had an opportunity to scream. From a distance, rushing towards him, it looked just like molasses. This is Victoria Bigglesworth Holmes. I hope you're enjoying yourself. I'd be very mad otherwise. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Or am I? Stay tuned for a short Q&A with the author in just a moment. Today's episode featured a story by Sebastian Bendix, Sweet and Sticky Sarah. If you'd like more information on Sebastian and his work, please visit him on his website at sebastianbendix.com. You can also find him on Twitter at Sebastian Bendix and at facebook.com forward slash the real Sebastian Bendix. Artwork for today's show was created by Alex Murd. You can find her over at her website at crazedpixel.com and on Twitter at crazedpixel. Musical score for today's show was provided by our music director, Nico Vitaze of We Talk of Dreams. Don't forget to visit our sponsors and friends of the show, Stigmata Studios, HorrorMade.com, ShadowsAtTheDoor.com, Cathedral Sounds, Sanitarium Press, and Rickert and Beagle Books. You can find links to their websites in the show notes for today's episode. Please share the terror, share the show, help us grow. The best support you can give us is to rate and write a short review of the show in iTunes. If you leave a star rating and a short review, it's totally free, means a lot to us. You can do that at itunes.thewickedlibrary.com. Don't let the librarian find out you didn't rate and review the show. Follow us on Twitter at Wicked Library. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash the Wicked Library. 
don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. You can get great prizes, bonus content, and more. You can sign up at thewickedlibrary.com. Don't forget, there are only three episodes left of The Wicked Library this season, but we have a huge back catalog going back five seasons. So there's plenty out there for you to enjoy. We also have a sister podcast called The Lift that I know all of you would enjoy if you haven't checked it out yet. You can do that over at victoriaslift.com. And now, Sebastian Bendix. So today my guest is Sebastian Bendix, and we just enjoyed your story, Sweet Sticky Sarah which is a fantastic story. We had some lighter fare for a little while, so I kind of felt like I wanted to dig into some darker stuff, and uh, this really fit the bill. Well, thanks. I'm, I'm glad that uh, you enjoyed it, and I'm really honored to have been chosen for your program. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. You know, I mean, we, we, uh, we try to pick the best stories, the ones that we know that the fans are really going to identify with, and there was just this very visceral, identifiable dread that runs through the entire piece that I really enjoyed. And I know that you, when we were talking before we started the interview, you mentioned that you're from Boston. And that was actually one of the first questions that I was going to ask you, because as being a tourist to Boston a few times, I picked up on on some of the the city from your writing, you know, and it felt mm-hmm. to me like you've either visited there or you've been there before. So it's it's interesting to learn that you actually grew up there. Yeah, yeah. I grew up there. Um, I grew up in a suburb of Boston, uh, Winchester, Massachusetts, which is really only about like 15 miles out of the city. And then I spent most of my uh, 20s uh, living in the city and around the city. I actually uh, was more of a musician than a writer uh, at that time, although I was a songwriter. So that sort of counts. Yeah. Um, but uh, so I spent most of my my 20s as a musician playing around the clubs in Boston. But I, you know, it was it was a city that I really fell in love with, um, especially the, the the history of it and the way it looks. And um, sort of the main setting of the story is the Commonwealth Avenue Mall, which is a really lovely sort of park that runs right through the middle of Commonwealth Avenue, which is one of the main sort of uh, thoroughfares of the Back Bay area. And I just would spend a lot of time there as as a, a you know a young guy, um, especially on warm days when I could kind of walk down the mall and you, you know you could hang out with people and stuff. And um, you know I just it was some a place that I knew really well, so I kind of always wanted to set a story there. And um, there was also a incident that happened in the way way far past that was always fascinating to to me and like as a person who lived in boston it was this you know there was this uh explosion of molasses in the north end and people died and and were killed in this crazy flood and you know i would hear that and i'd be like molasses there was a molasses disaster (laughs) and you know you know as uh later when i moved away and um you know, there's stuff like Wikipedia and online resources. I sort of did a little, you know, half-assed research and and uh, found out that yeah, that that really happened, and yeah. what a bizarre and horrible thing. Um, so I just kind of incorporated that into the story. That was sort of how it it came about, and I was sort of prepping for a ghost novel that I'm I'm sort of slowly picking away at, and uh, but I wanted to sort of. Uh, approach a ghost story in a shorter form so that I could kind of wrap my my creative head around it and that that's what I came up with so yeah it was a lot of fun and and you know I you mentioned you know the, the molasses flood being real which 
you know, it was one of the things that I always found fascinating about the city's history is that this actually happened and that you had people that drowned in it and horses that were stuck in it. And you hear the phrase, you know, slow as molasses in January. And of course that does not apply in Boston (laughs) in that January specifically. Yeah. Um, And when I sent the story off to my composer, who's doing the scoring for it, uh, that's one of the first things that he said was, you know, I had no idea that this was actually real. (laughs) It just seems so surreal, doesn't it? I mean, it's, it's so odd. Yeah. I mean, I hope someday, um, somebody makes puts it into some sort of film form i would love to see a, a an interpretation of it put to screen yeah. um and, and that's cool if my story educates people into that weird moment in history then I, i've done my job yeah um, <laughs> and that's the second part of it that i really liked you know was it, it has that element where not everybody knows about that and it's a really interesting time in history too it's you know it's that end of the Victorian era. I believe it's slightly after the Edwardian era. Um, yeah. And it's just, you know, there's just like a, such a, a, a strange feel to that time. You know, it's like we're right on the cusp of becoming very modern and we're still tied back to all these old traditions and everything. Yeah, I agree. It, that's a, it's a time period that I also find really interesting. It's why I sort of, uh, really enjoyed the show uh, Boardwalk Empire because it's, oh, yeah. it's it sort of lands right in that spot of the late tens or whatever you'd call it of, of the of the 20th century and then into the 20s and the temperance movement and everything. Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of right in that historical spot that it is to, like like you said uh, to your point, it's really interesting because of, yeah, the sort of Victorian Edwardian hangover. And yet we're sort of moving into the modern day. Um, right. It is, it's totally interesting. So obviously this is not your first short work. You've written a, a lot of other short works. What do you, and you're writing a novel. So I thought I'd ask what, what do you find to be the differences between writing for the short form and writing for the long form? Well, it's sort of the nice thing about writing for the short form is you can kind of um, workshop ideas that are maybe smaller that, you know, you, if, you, if it's just sort of like you have a, the nugget of an idea, but you don't have a whole lot to go with it, it sort of affords you the opportunity to sort of play with that idea and not worry too much about plotting and and going too far into that end of things. I mean, I'm also um, a screenwriter, and uh, I haven't had anything that's been produced yet, but that's sort of how I came around to working, to doing like novels and um, the short stories was that I, you know, had written a bunch of screenplays and I'm out here in Hollywood and, you know, there's been a little traction here and there, but it's, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to sort of break through and to actually get something made. And I sort of felt like, well, you know, I've got these ideas and I, and I really like them and I want them to live in some form and, and the, you know, screenplay isn't something, you know, it's an intermediate, uh, it's not a, it's not a work that can live on its own. So I, you know, I, I decided, well, I'm going to take some ideas and see if they work in prose and, and some of them did. And so, with the short stories, it was, you know, more sort of ideas where I was like, well, this would kind of be, you know, I wouldn't write this as a movie or anything. It would be sort of maybe, uh, you know, a Tales from the Crypt episode or something like that, which is, you know, I really love the horror anthology format. Yeah. Um, and 
I just kind of, it was funny. It, all of these stories pretty much happened over the course of a year. Uh, I had played around with a few ideas, but and I, I've been working on um, a novel and I put out a, a YA novel and now I have um, two more that I'm trying to finish up. But I just kind of was driving in my car and I was like, well, what if I tried sort of this short story anthology kind of idea? And one immediately popped into my mind and I was like, oh, okay, well, that's cool. And so I started working on that and then they just kind of all came out. It was it was really strange. Um, it was like once I opened those floodgates, <laughs> all of a sudden, all these ideas that would work in that context, because I, I think it's just it's really um, and I'm, this is sort of sorry for going around this the long way, but no, uh, not at all. when you're approaching a novel, you, you approach it with big ideas. I feel like you have to have big ideas and, you know, and big ideas demand a longer length. So your sort of, your creative mind sort of compartmentalizes it and you think in terms of, well, this would be something that can, you know, sustain 300 pages of, of content and, and you know the the shorter stories are ideas where I just like well no I kind of you know I can see the characters here and I can see sort of the point of the story and it doesn't really need to be much more than that so this is a, a short story idea but I'm my my short stories tend to run a little long um, sweet and sticky was w one of the the shorter ones so. When, you know, when we when we came across your um, your your show, we you know sort of earmarked it for that because we're like, oh, okay, we fit into their format with this yeah. one, so hopefully they like it. Um, but yeah, so it it was just I think it was just my brain's way of sort of figuring out what ideas fit better where, and you know what things are going to. Uh, demand much more investigation and, and deeper probing, and and so those those ideas become the novels, and, and the the smaller ideas become the short stories. Excellent, yeah. And you know, I find that most writers tell me that uh, when you're writing something, the, the story dictates what it's going to be. You know, you can yeah. kind of tell, and, and you know, there's there's always that that chance of a surprise when you're writing something, and it it you think it's going to be a short story and it turns into something bigger. So I've not yeah. had that experience yet, but I've heard it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I sort of, I, I haven't really had, I haven't had one of those moments where something I thought was a short story actually sort of ballooned into a novel. Um, so yeah, I mean, I haven't quite had that, but I definitely understand the um, whole thing where characters dictate the story. And I think that's kind of the key to the difference between sort of screenwriting and writing prose is that you kind of have to let the characters have their way with, with prose more. And I, it, I've been finding that that's really sort of the difference between those two mediums with screenwriting. You kind of have to like to rein it in because you only really have so much time and, and you, you know, you need to get to the, the, to the point quicker. And, um, and I've been just enjoying that part of prose writing. Actually, I've, you know, been letting my, the, the, the stuff that I'm working at on as novels kind of breathe that way. And it's been, it's been really liberating. Yeah. It's a lot of fun when a character steps up to the, to the microphone and, and they really want to be heard. Um, 
you know, I, I think that's probably the most enjoyable experience and part of writing is to have a character that really develops and comes to life for you and, and kind of, you, as there's times when it almost feels like you're trying to take dictation if, if, if you have yeah. a character that really comes to life. Yeah. Well, and I feel like that's the, those are the moments where you, you really feel like, you know, you're creating something that works and that, that feels real, yes. uh, you know? <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's that great. It is a great feeling. It's, that's a really, uh, uh, that is that you've sort of really kind of nailed it. That is the, the pleasure of writing when you, you have those sort of transcendent moments where you feel like I'm, this is just coming through me. And, you know, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Speaking of that, it brings up a good point. One of the questions that I had for you is, you know, not every day writing is a good day writing. Um, sometimes it's a struggle. Sometimes you fight with the story and you fight with the characters. And what yeah. do you do whenever you get into that situation? How do you push through it? Well, uh, for me, I'm I'm lucky in that I am very prolific and I have all these ideas that are in some form of development so if I'm stuck on one thing, I just move on to another. And um, it usually happens, I've, I've found that there are stages in the work where it happens more frequently than others. And for me, it's the rewriting process that's the hardest. I can usually get through a draft pretty quickly, but it's a awful, <laughs> awful draft. <laughs> and I, one thing that, that's been good about my creative process that I, I hear a lot of other writers complain about, and I don't know if this comes from being a musician or whatever, but I really allow myself what I call the vomit draft. My first draft is terrible and I will never let anyone read it, not even my wife, who is my most trusted confidant and partner and in, in, even in the creative process, but I won't even let her read it because it's, it's terrible. You know, yeah. I mean, it's written like somebody who can barely write at all and so then I usually, I, you know, I go in and do a second draft, which gets things into a little bit better shape, and then it's sort of readable. But then by the third draft, when I'm really trying to make it sort of sing, it's hard. Yeah. That I really get stuck. I'll get stuck on sentences where I'm like, this sentence is the worst. You know, <laughs> like, I, I'll, I'll become sort of personally offended by my own writing and how bad a sentence is or like I, I need to think of how to describe this a different way or so it it's my when I get stuck it's usually at that at that point I, I usually work through the story pretty quickly you know and of course things change and then I'll have you know ideas of maybe okay maybe the story can go a different way here um, and and then that's kind of a pain because you know your, your story is a sort of house of cards. And if you start moving things around, well, then, oh, I've got to fix this, yeah. you know, everywhere. So, I mean, I try to outline um, pretty thoroughly if I can, but I'm also impatient. So I tend to sort of like, I'll do like one outline and then I'll be like, all right, well, I'm jumping into this thing now. So <laughs> I, I don't usually just write off the top of my head, I know Stephen King, who, of course, I think everyone who writes horror in this era is influenced by him. Um, 
he he just sits down and starts writing and you know he doesn't even have an idea of where it's going to go and he just kind of lets it go and and i can't that that gives me uh, anxiety to just to <laughs> to think of trying to approach something that way so yeah. you know i'm a pretty thorough outliner but once i'm sort of into the writing of it i let it go where it needs to go. And if I get stuck, I move on to the (laughs) backlog of other ideas that I have. So that's kind of how I deal with it. Excellent. So what advice would you have for new writers or writers that listen to the show or read your work and, 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 and are inspired to write their own stuff? I, my advice, it would be uh, pretty simple and it's turn off your inner critic so that you can actually write. Um, I think a lot of people get sort of stuck on, you know, they want to write and they sit down and they, they might have an idea or something, but they stare at the blank page and they, they expect the words to flow and be perfect prose or whatever. Don't just turn off the inner critic at that point and just write and feel the pleasure of it and experience don't worry about what you're trying to do with it or what sort of success you want to have with it. Just learn to enjoy doing it because if you don't love doing it, you know, what's the point, you know, don't, don't be a writer because that's what you think you want to be Write because you love doing it and, you know, find the, where it is in the process that you derive that pleasure. Like, like what you were saying where, that moment where a character sort of takes on a life of its own, like recognize like, oh, that feels really good, you know, and and then it's going to be something that you're going to chase and you're going to want to do and you're going to want to keep doing it and get better and better at it. You know, it's, um, you know, and, and if you have an idea for a story, you know, that's the sort of, you know, then that's the, the sort of the impetus that's going to kind of get you going. So, yeah, my advice is just let yourself be terrible <laughs> at first <laughs> because you can always that's the that's something you can always improve, you know. And, I mean, we're all anyone who who writes is always improving. And and read too and and when you read, really read, like think about what it is that you're reading, why you enjoy it. Is it the language that the 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 author uses and you know, like I've been sort of trying to go back and and read you know some classics you know stuff like Ray Bradbury and stuff like that just to you know cuz the stories are great too but also just to listen to the language and and you know sort of get my head around why it's like why this sentence is such a great sentence and you know i think the, those three things you know let yourself be terrible um Figure out what it is that you enjoy about it while you're doing it and then read so that words are in your head and other authors' voices are in your head and you can sort of draw from that. And that would be my advice. That's excellent. That's, that's, that's perfect advice. You know, those, those, those pieces are so important and, and I think that that's really the area where most new writers struggle. So I think that's, that's perfect. Yeah, the main one is just let yourself be terrible. Yes. That's, <laughs> because trust me, I let myself be really bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the part that people don't see. I mean, like when you first come to writing and you read these great works of fiction, and, and until you start to do it yourself, I don't think you realize that 
there's a lot of work that goes into getting it to look the way that it does on the page. And, you know, I think that whenever we first aspire to write, we want to, you know, it needs to be like that. No, it doesn't because it takes work to get there. Exactly. You can always change it. (laughs) It's, it's really the weight of your expectations. You know, if you're going to, if you expect to, to have your fingers dance across the keyboard and to have Ray Bradbury come out, you're going to (laughs) really frustrate yourself because he's an amazing writer and it took him years and years and years. You know, not that it needs, you know, not that you should be worrying about how long it's going to take you, but you know, there's a lot of, there's been a lot of work that's gone into that and, and rewriting and, you know, you just have to, you have to allow yourself the time to become good. You yeah, know? Exactly. I mean, we're all doing it where, you know, and it never stops. It's not, I don't think it's ever, I think also another mistake that people make is they, they don't understand that, you know, the creative process is an ongoing experience. It's always evolving and, you know, you're, you're changing and your style is changing and, you know, you're getting better as you go. And, you know, I mean, Stephen King wasn't Stephen King when he wrote his first book, you know, it took, took him many books and, you know, so it's an evolving process. And I think the, the real, the key is to, you know, just learn to, to love it and then you will do it. Absolutely. So what else do you have going on? What, uh, where can folks find you? What can they look for coming up? That sort of thing. Uh, well, I'm going to have uh, a big um, – you know, my website is SebastianBendix.com. Um, so if you're in, in – you like my work and you want to read more, there's lots of links there to different places where you can – um, you know, download my stories. Uh, I've got a lot of stuff on Amazon, you know, it's like, they're like a buck and you can get, um, you know, a a pretty decent sized short story. Um, so I have, um, around eight or nine things up there and they've got cool covers done by a really good friend of mine, Ian Adams, who's an amazing Boston artist. And he, he does a lot of my illustrations and they're just, they're really fun to look at. It looks it's a nice sort of gallery. So there's, you know, there's like about eight or nine books up there right now. Um, I'm working on one more, um, in that series and that will probably be collected at some point in an an anthology. Um, and then, but for this year, my focus has been working on, um, a, a novel that's, that we're trying to get out to publishers, which is sort of not quite the horror genre, but it has horror elements. Um, and we're hoping to get that out, uh, in a couple of weeks really, and see what happens there. Um, and I've just got all sorts of other, all, all sorts of other stuff in the, in the, in the pipeline. So, um, you know, I would just, uh, encourage people to check out my website, see what's there, you know, check out Sebastian Bendix on amazon.com. You'll find a bunch of stuff there. And, uh, if you like this, you'll probably like a lot of that stuff too. Excellent. And where can we find you on Twitter? Uh, Sebastian Bendix uh, at Sebastian Bendix, I think on Twitter, I, I sort of not as much on Twitter. Uh, I'm more of a Facebook guy, so okay. uh, I would advise people to look for me on Facebook, but when I post on Facebook, it goes to Twitter too. So okay. I sort of show up there, but yeah, I'm more of the Facebook, a Facebooker, but I am on Twitter. So. Excellent. Okay. Well then we'll, we'll, we'll suggest folks look at, look for you on Facebook first. 
And yeah. The diehard Twitter fiends can uh, can still get your content, but uh, yes. if they want to interact with you, it's easier to do that on Facebook, right? Yeah, yeah. If, if you interact with me on Facebook, I'll I'll definitely respond. I, I, I monitor Twitter, too, and I try to pay attention to it, but, uh, you know, Facebook's just kind of more my jam. Excellent. Yeah, it's a lot easier. And, you know, from, from what I understand, like, whenever people get on the internet, 80% of their time is on Facebook. So yeah, <laughs> you're not, you don't have a bad marketing plan there. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's <laughs> definitely me. But yeah, so Facebook is for the recommended way. But yeah, if you're looking for me, you can find me on Twitter. I, I have a, I'm out there on the webs. Excellent. Well, I really want to thank you for letting us do your story and I uh, really want to thank you. No, thank you so much, Dan. I'm really honored to be on the show and I'm, it's been a great experience. Thank you so much. You're quite welcome. All works read in this audio recording and associated music and artwork are copyright of their respective creators and may not be used in any form without their permission. Dramatic reading performed by Daniel Foytek. That's me. The voice of the librarian was performed by Nelson W. Piles. The voice of Victoria Bigglesworth Hayes was performed by Amber Collins. The Wicked Library theme was written by Anthony Rosick and performed by Novus. This episode of The Wicked Library featured a custom score by Nico Vitasse of We Talk of Dreams. All incidental music in this episode was performed by Kevin McLeod and Incompetech.com or by Jason Shaw of Audionautics.com. Check the show notes for titles and credits. The Wicked Library is a Ninth Story Studios production, ninthstory.com. Producer, Daniel Foytek. Executive producer and creator, Nelson W. Piles. Music director, Nico Vitaze. Art director, Stephen Matico. Full show notes with links and artwork can be found at thewickedlibrary.com forward slash 623. Until next time, this has been Daniel Foytek. Go ahead, leave the lights on. It makes it easier to see how sweet and sticky Sarah is. <laughs> societies rise and societies fall. When the time comes, one society steps forward to build a better future. The Wicked Library, Kettle Whistle Radio, Ninth Story Podcast, Prog Watch, Red Horse Radio, The Lift, History Goes Bumble, Listen, The M Writing Podcast, Society 13, Rebuilding Society, one podcast at a time.